Twitter's Saudi spy infiltration, NIST's new privacy framework, and the state of business email compromise in the UK. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. The US Department of Justice has charged three men with perpetrating a campaign to infiltrate Twitter and spy on critics of the Saudi government. With more on the story, here's ISMG's Executive Editor Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz. The government of Saudi Arabia has faced intense international criticism for its state-sponsored assassinations of critics of the country's ruling regime, led by King Salman. So it's especially concerning that on Wednesday, U.S. federal prosecutors unsealed a criminal complaint charging three men, including two former Twitter employees, with spying on behalf of the kingdom and its royal family. The alleged spying campaign targeted more than 6,000 individuals on Twitter who had criticized the Saudi regime, including prominent journalists and human rights advocates. U.S. Attorney David L. Anderson says that the criminal complaint alleges that Saudi agents mined Twitter's internal systems for personal information about known Saudi critics and thousands of other Twitter users. Prosecutors say the data shared with Saudi officials included information deemed by Twitter to be confidential and restricted. Court documents say that included email addresses, IP addresses, and dates of birth. Officials say this information could have been used to not only identify, but also locate the Twitter users who published these posts. One of the targeted accounts included that of Omar Abdulaziz, a prominent journalist who was close to the late Washington Post columnist Jamel Khashoggi. Khashoggi, a U.S. resident, was lured to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in October 2018, where he was murdered by a hit team dispatched by the Saudi government. The CIA has reportedly concluded that Khashoggi, a vocal critic of the Saudi government, was killed on the orders of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Back to the Twitter spying case. On Tuesday, authorities arrested Ahmad Abu Amo, 41 years of age, in Seattle. He worked for Twitter as a media partnership manager for the Middle East and Africa from November 2013 to May 2015. He's been charged with funneling information to Saudi handlers in exchange for more than $100,000 in cash, as well as a luxury watch that he later tried to sell on Craigslist. He's also been charged with lying to the FBI and attempting to obstruct its investigation, in part by giving them a bogus invoice. The other two men named in the criminal indictment remain at large and are believed to be in Saudi Arabia. Both are Saudi citizens. One of them, Ali Al-Zabara, 35 years old, first came to the U.S. to study on a Saudi scholarship in 2005. From 2014 until near the end of 2015, he worked as a site reliability engineer for Twitter and allegedly funneled more than 6,000 Twitter users' details to Saudi officials. The third man to be charged is Ahmad Al-Jbrin, 30 years old, who allegedly arranged meetings, acted as a go-between, and facilitated communications between the Saudi government and the other defendants, according to court documents. If convicted, all three defendants face a maximum statutory prison sentence of 10 years and a $250,000 fine for violating U.S. law by acting as an agent of a foreign government without first notifying the U.S. Attorney General. In addition, Abuamo faces an additional 20 years in prison and a $250,000 fine if convicted of obstructing justice. 
Setting aside the nationality of some of the individuals involved in this case, it's a clear reminder that all firms, but especially Silicon Valley firms handling mountains of personal data, remain at risk from malicious insiders. In a tweet, Alex Stamos, the former chief security officer at Facebook, says that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia isn't at the top of his list of high-risk countries who have numerous citizens working in Silicon Valley. That's why he says all big tech companies need internal monitoring as well as threat hunting teams. And when it comes to this type of spying by insiders, he says simply, there will be more. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST as it's more commonly known, is due to publish its first privacy standards framework in a few weeks. And ISMG's contributing editor, Eric Chabro, got to speak with Naomi Lefkowitz of NIST about the standard. Here's Eric with more. The privacy framework the National Institute of Standards and Technology is drafting closely follows the format of the widely adopted NIST cybersecurity framework. NIST is reviewing stakeholders' comments on the draft of the privacy framework as it finalizes version 1 of the guidance. The privacy framework is a tool organizations can employ to better identify, assess, manage, and communicate about privacy risk. Though the privacy framework leverages processes found in the cybersecurity framework, the privacy framework includes what NIST characterizes as novel concepts absent in the cybersecurity framework. Here's Naomi Lefkowitz. She's leading NIST's development of the privacy framework. When I say there are some novel concepts, is you know, we took some of that work and leveraged that and introduced that in the privacy framework. And so you'll see, if you look at cybersecurity framework, you'll see that there's a category on risk assessment, and they talk about those cybersecurity factors like likelihood and impact and threats and vulnerabilities. And if you look at the privacy framework and the same risk assessment category, we've substituted things like problematic data actions and likelihood and impact to really provide more granular type of factors that organizations can use to analyze and identify privacy risk. A major objective of the privacy framework is to help organizations create profiles that can be used to conduct self-assessments. Those self-assessments can facilitate communications on how privacy risk can be managed. It's a point made by Informatica Chief Healthcare Strategist Richard Kramer, who was interviewed at a recent ISMG security conference. When we think about risk, how many fields of sensitive data are in a particular database? How many records that have that data are in the database? How many people access it? How frequently? How much data is accessed at a time? And using all of those things, you actually are able to develop a risk profile. The risk profile is a byproduct of the core that's at the heart of the privacy framework. The core consists of functions, categories, and subcategories that provide a set of activities and outcomes that spurs individuals within an organization to collaborate on managing privacy risk. Here again is Nis Naomi Lefkowitz. This core, which is sort of divided up into sort of high-level functions and then categories and subcategories, is not intended to be treated as a checklist, right? This is not a prescriptive document, but rather to help organizations think about 
what are the key activities that I need to prioritize to really help me manage privacy risk? And sort of the mechanism for doing that, which is sort of the second main component of the framework, is this concept of developing a profile. And so organizations can sort of say, these are, you know, the activities, the outcomes, these sub, you know, we pick these functions and categories and subcategories. This is what we are doing today, so that's sort of our current profile, and here's where we need to be, that's our target profile. And that difference between the two profiles can help organizations create an action plan that will really help them to strengthen their privacy programs and strengthen their protection for individuals for their privacy. In developing a privacy framework, organizations must also evaluate the risks posed when sharing sensitive data with other organizations, such as vendors. Privacy engineer Jason Kronk is author of the book Strategic Privacy by Design, and in a conversation with ISMG's Jeremy Kirk, Kronk explains how sharing data with third parties could create unacceptable risks. It's not just may those third-party vendors then go and do something nefarious and have a data breach, but are they using it for a purpose other than why you gave it to them? What is the likelihood that the organizations you're sharing information with will commit this privacy violation of secondary use? That's the impact. And and do that kind of assessment again beforehand, before you share the information, before you decide, even if you need to share the information, because maybe if it's a high risk that the type of organization you're sharing with is going to commit this privacy violation, maybe you need to redesign your system to get those vendors, those third parties out of the design, out of the ecosystem. You can find a copy of the draft of the privacy framework at nist.gov. Lefkowitz says NIST should publish version one of the privacy framework by year's end. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Eric Chabro. Finally, ISMG held its Cybersecurity Summit in London the other week, and among the interviews conducted by the team was one on business email compromise with Seven Elements CEO David Stubley. Damage that can be perpetrated is quite staggering, with one notable attack resulting in $900,000 in losses from a single emailed invoice, according to Seven Elements. In this segment of the interview, Matthew Schwartz asked David how he's seeing BEC attacks evolve. Here's his answer. So we're seeing, um, and certainly the research that we've been doing, so we're, we're not only responding to incidents, we've actually been um, doing our, our own research on some of the attack themes that we've seen uh, and investigating uh, the, the different attack themes that are coming through. And we're seeing three broad uh, groupings. Now, the, it's important to know that obviously each individual incident is its own unique uh, microcosm of activity and the, the, the person will do what they can given the parameters that they've got to play with. Um, but if we remember, they're all trying to affect a financial payment away from the organization. And what, so what we're actually seeing is, is three, as I said, broad groupings. We've got the first sort of low-skilled, chaotic, uh, chancer end of the spectrum where they, they will gain access to a, a mailbox to generally through a phishing uh, email attack. And then they're just t- sending in the most awful invoices uh, you know, and just chancing that they're going to get a payment. Uh, and, and you'd probably see that, uh, you know, any degree of control or rigor internally would stop that payment from being being affected. But unfortunately, we still do see those those payments being made by by organisations. Uh, we're then seeing a sort of a middle tier, the more professional uh, end of the market, where they take their time to understand the mailbox that they've compromised, uh, what that user has privileges for within the environment in terms of invoice approval, uh, instigation, etc. Um, they will often compromise other mailboxes to support that main activity as well, and then they're manipulating the mailboxes and they're using that to sort of send in tailored 
uh, invoicing, either replaying an invoice that had previously been um, paid successfully, but updating it with their own payment details and sending it back into the organisation, or leveraging that uh, an activity is ongoing, i.e. A, a business acquisition or some legal advice, and then using that as the mechanism to send a, a, a high-value uh, invoice. And, and some of the cases, well, one we did last week, that resulted in paying away of, of 900,000 US dollars in one invoice. Um, so they're you know, high value and, and very well um, delivered attacks. And then the last group is actually probably more concerning, um, is that they're not actually doing any financial fraud. They're breaking into mailboxes through very elaborate phishing schemes, and then they're actually looking at the, the data that the organisation has, and they're taking sensitive data out of the organisation in a very silent manner, uh, and then just slowly melting back into the background and, and not sort of tipping their hand that they've compromised uh, the, the mailbox, and so those ones are probably the harder ones to, to, to spot and investigate. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.